0: good morning, guys. Um, so clearly I am not Vic. Um, <laughs> so my name is Clay Hicks. Um, if, I, if I don't know you, uh, I have the privilege to serve you as one of your elders. Um, and Vic and, and family, Maria and everybody else, are away this weekend um, celebrating uh, their son Seth's graduation from Marine Corps boot camp. Let me hear it from the Marines. All right. So Seth, if you're watching, congratulations, buddy. Uh, Job well done. So this morning, uh, we're going to be in Galatians. So uh, I'm filling in for Vic this week, obviously, and um, he's going to be transitioning at some point. I forget whether it's next week or or shortly thereafter to the New Testament uh, out of Isaiah for a bit. But this morning we're going to be in Galatians 5, and before we, before we stand for the reading, uh, just a little background on Galatians. So the Galatian people uh, were a Celtic group in the central uh, region of Asia Minor, um, who had been there for a couple of hundred years when Rome occupied, and then eventually uh, brought them into the Roman Empire. And then on Paul's missionary journeys, uh, he established a number of churches within the principally southern region of Galatia. And it was to these people and these uh, churches that Paul writes uh, his letter to the Galatians. And Paul instructs the Galatian people in the doctrine of of justification by faith, principally uh, in chapters three and four. And he really labors uh, to teach them that. And he does so from more of a theological standpoint. And he fleshes it out, though, in chapters five and six from a much more practical standpoint. And today we're going to focus on that, exactly that, the practical outworkings of the life of the Spirit within the believer in chapter 5. So if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word as is our tradition. We're going to be in uh, verses 13 and following, Galatians 5, 13 and following. And so he says, "'For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh.'" But through love, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So Paul begins uh, this section of scripture by contrasting the newfound freedom uh, that we have in Christ and the propensity to utilize that freedom to satisfy the flesh with the command to love one another through service. He reminds us in verse 14 That the whole law is fulfilled in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul's statement here distills where our mind and our heart should be down to the fact that our attitude towards one another should be one of sacrifice and should be setting myself as a lower priority to those around me, their needs, their desires. And verse 15 reminds us that we experience nothing truly new in this life. Vic said this a number of times. Nothing that hasn't been experienced for many thousands of years. And we see this as a consistent refrain throughout the world, throughout history, throughout our time as well. As strife ensues within a family, a group, a community, eventually results in the collapse of that family group, community, or even a nation, because they end up destroying one another, something we've seen time and again through history. Now, sadly, many who claim the name of Christ see these types of things as the front line in the war, one person against another, one group against another, one community or nation against another. And it's unfortunate that, in, that, especially in this modern day, modern day Christians for the most part have no idea that they find themselves in the midst of a lifelong war. Now, in general, we are consumed with the activities of daily life. I know I can get that way for sure. Combined with our lack of knowledge through his, uh, of God through his word, We are unaware that a spiritual war rages around us, but more to the point of today's scripture, it rages within us. Now in verse 16, Paul says, but I say, now this is his transition point uh, in his instruction to the Galatian people, that they should walk by the spirit. Our focus today will be what that is and what it isn't. What it looks like, what it doesn't look like. However, in my study, something jumped off the page at me. Paul says that if you walk in the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Notice he does not finish that statement with some form of a caveat. You might not, you won't most of the time. Sometimes it's powerful enough, sometimes not. He makes a definitive statement of what will happen when we follow the Lord's command. Now, first, let's remind ourselves of what the Bible means when it uses the word flesh, the flesh. The term flesh is used throughout the New Testament refers when it's talking about the spiritual flesh, not just, you know, my flesh, the as yet unredeemed component of my nature. At the moment of our salvation, our justification is certainly made sure by Christ through his finished work of, uh, on the cross and in resurrection. And we receive a new nature that's been moved from death to life. Other parts of Scripture talk about that we've been moved from darkness to light. However, we see throughout Scripture that a salvation began at, that began at our new birth continues on throughout our life until one day our salvation will be made complete when our sin nature is removed along with the curse of sin in in this world and our bodies. But until that point, there is a component of us that is still yet not fully redeemed. Now we have one nature, but that nature has two components. And those two components are at war with us, and they are the flesh and the spirit. So Paul's initial statement regarding their opposition, when you walk, or is in opposition, when you walk by the spirit, you will not carry out the desire of flesh. So in verse 17, he continues on here. And he says that for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now the thing to note here that the desire of the flesh is singular. It doesn't have multiple desires. It can manifest itself in multiple different ways. We're certainly going to see that in Scripture. But the desire of the flesh is no different than that of Satan when he fell from heaven. Our flesh desires to rebel in every way and at every point against the holiness and sovereignty of God. It is that ever-present urge within us to set myself above God and to refuse to bow my knee so that I may live my life in whatever way I choose, and behave in whatever way that I want to behave. We see Paul lament over his own flesh in Romans 7. Where he complains that he doesn't do the things that he wants to do. But he does do the things that he wants to stay away from. But what we also see throughout the writings of, of Paul in the New Testament. Is his consistent submission of his flesh to the spirit. And his engagement willful engagement in that war. So Paul then goes on into more detail regarding what the what the deeds of the flesh look like. One desire of the flesh, but it can fle- it can manifest itself in many different deeds. And this will show how the singular desire of the flesh gets worked out in our daily life. And so in verse 19 through 21, he lays out a number of deeds that are, that are evident. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And we see somewhat of a little bit of a grouping of sins here, types of sins. And the first group that he, that he lays out is sort of group sins, right? Where, where multiple people are, are engaged in sin together. And he pulls together things like immorality and impurity. Now, this original word that we translate into immorality is the word pornea. That's where we get the word pornography from. And it refers to any sexual activity outside the confines of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman. And we see that impurity goes right along with that. They're one and the same. He talks about sensuality, being a slave to the senses is what that word is referencing. Marked by a restraint of that, or a lack of restraint of that behavior. And what this references is a lifestyle where satisfying the senses is my prime motivation. We can think about our constant need for entertainment, our constant need for fun, right? I can point to adrenaline junkies, kind of the same thing, right? A constant need to satisfy my senses. He mentions idolatry, setting up anything in my life that takes preeminence over the spirit in my life. And that can be anything. I mentioned sorcery. Now your, your translation may say witchcraft. The actual original word that is translated here is the word pharmakeia. It's where we get the word pharmacy. <laughs> so it refers to the utilization of mind-altering drugs. Now where this word got connected back then was uh, many false religions used to utilize drugs, and still do to this day, in order to create a mind-altered state uh, as part of their false religion. But it was the use of mind-altering drugs that he's, that he's referring to there. And so we also see another group that he speaks about here, where these are sins of generally, they, they can certainly turn into group sins, but generally one, it begins as one person against another. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes and dissensions, and it goes on. Now, these forms of of activity, of sins, display an underlying seething anger towards other people, which can easily turn into outright hatred. And my question for you this morning is, do you experience friction and strife with people on a regular basis? If so, the question needs to be asked of all of us, if we find that in our lives, whether you or I bear some responsibility in that friction. Are we part of the strife, the dissension? Now, specifically with respect to an outburst of anger, is this the way you would be described by other people? would your family friends coworkers neighbors whoever describe you as hot headed people routinely who, who have who routinely have outbursts of anger even though it may appear this way don't go from zero to explosion right that, that's not that's not how the human nature works they're usually sitting on a low simmer all the time Right? and waiting to boil over. And what appears to be an explosion is nothing more than the revelation to those around them of what is consistently going on in their heart and mind. And what is inside that type of person is a hatred of a person, a group, or just people in general. And that hatred has grown over time until it's a constant low boil. Now, the love of Christ, if it ever was there in this person, has now grown cold. And the fire of hatred has been stoked. And on this topic, we need to remind ourselves of John's instruction in 1 John 2, 9 through 11, where he says, The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother and sister remains in the light and there is nothing in him to cause stumbling. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Church, we need to understand that if I'm a person who is routinely angry and marked by strife and dissent, the problem isn't with those around me. The problem lies within me. And I need to be asking not how do I deal with all these people with whom I have strife and dissent. I need to be asking what is the source of this anger and hatred inside me? Now we see a progression to these deeds of the flesh. Enmities lead to strife which leads to jealousy which leads to angry outbursts, which leads to disputes, which leads to dissensions, which leads to faction and envy. And church, we need to see that this list of sins brings about the stench of death. It does not bring life. And we know this, right? We see this. It not only brings about death of mind, body, soul, soul. It brings about the death of relationships, whether marriage, friends, family, church, business, culture, nations, whatever it is. Now, the typical worldly response to to the bad behavior is to blame someone, anyone, except me. And you may be thinking that, you know, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what these other people are doing or not doing or how I've been treated or whatever it is. If you could only understand the way I was raised, you know, my dad, he, my mom, she, my wife, she, my husband, he does this, that, the other, whatever it is, or doesn't do. If only these people wouldn't act this way, I wouldn't act this way. Right? How many times have we heard it? How many times have we said it. But church, these are lies. We have to call them what they are. These are the lies the world that tells us, but unfortunately and most insidiously, these are lies that we tell ourselves. Now it is without question without question true, that how we are raised, how we are treated certainly can have a major effect on us by what people do around us, do to us, or don't do for us. And for those who have had traumatic experiences either in upbringing or or in life in general, or for those who have difficulty in their life for any number of reasons, that's why we offer biblical counseling. We as elders, we as leaders in the church, mature believers throughout the body. Why we established the biblical counseling center in its, its in its infancy at this point, and hopefully will grow. But understand something: the goal of biblical counseling is not to change those around you. Right? The goal of biblical counseling is to help bring you and I into alignment with God's word both in mind and behavior as it relates to what's taking place in my life. However, we need to understand that as one who has been made new in Christ with a new nature that by the power of the Spirit we are capable of living in a way that pleases him. And my behavior is never the responsibility of someone else. I and I alone am responsible for how I react to other people, both around me and then how I live in submission to Christ and the Spirit within me. Scripture here and everywhere else recognizes that sin around us and against us can affect us. It can, right? It's obvious but it does not provide any room for escaping the responsibility for my own sin. Now as evidence of this, Jesus spent three years ministering to people who ended up hating him. To include uh, Jewish leaders, crowds, and others who claimed to be his followers. Imagine the frustration he experienced with his own disciples. In John 14, he responds to Philip and he says, have I been with you this long and you still don't believe? And you don't know me? In Matthew 8, during the storm out on the sea, he responds to the disciples' fear and he says, oh, you of little faith. Now, this says nothing of the betrayal of Judas The betrayal of his own people before Pilate. The betrayal of Peter and the scattering of his disciples. The agony and pain and horrific nature of the Roman crucifixion. Yet during this time, he uttered no word against them. He asked the Father to forgive them because they had no idea what they were doing. Now you may be tempted to respond, Yeah, but he's Jesus and, you know, I'm me. Well, let's remind ourselves again of what scripture says. There are no provisions for excuses when it comes to his commands. He says in John 13, a new command I give you that you are to love one another. That's a command. We love to kind of look at the warm and fuzzy piece of that, but that's a command. In First Peter one, chapter or, excuse me, chapter one, verse thirteen, Peter reminds us, and he says, "Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. These are affirmative actions, right? These are going back to our, my original statement regarding the war. These are an engagement in the war that, rep, that that rages within me. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in the spirit." Don't get tossed all over the place by every whim of feeling that I have. Act in a way that I choose to act. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Church, we don't have an option here. As Rodney mentioned earlier in his opening, the Word of God is the Word of God, it isn't a list of suggestions. So now back to Galatians chapter 5. Paul reminds them that he's forewarned them against such behaviors, and he continues to do so now. He also makes the statement that those who practice such things, which references to a lifestyle of behavior marked by these types of fleshly behaviors, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He is not here saying that if you've ever been angry or you've ever been jealous, that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You've been kicked out of salvation. That's not what he's saying. His point here is that these behaviors, if seen as routine, are hallmarks of a person who is not a part of the kingdom of God. Now, if you sit here today or you're listening online and your lifestyle is marked by these behaviors, you must ask yourself whether you belong to him or not. I can't answer that for you. You need to get before the holy God and ask yourself that. Now, what if I'm a follower of Christ But sometimes, not as a pattern, but sometimes engage in one of these sins or multiple of them. We have to understand that many times we coddle sin, make excuses for it, give it room to live in our minds and hearts. Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 13, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So the question is, how do I make no provision for the flesh? What, what does that mean? Now, the first thing that we must understand is that we are in a war, as we, as we spoke about earlier. You have to understand that before you're going to make war against your flesh. And this is what Paul was getting at in verse 17 regarding the flesh and the spirit being set against each other. There are a number of places in scripture that discuss this. But first and foremost, we can go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, right? Where it says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And on the topic of the mind, we can go to 2 Corinthians 10, 5, which says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But the question remains, how do I do all of that? Practically, how do I do all of that? Well, Paul does not leave us to wonder. In the second half of our passage today in Galatians 5, he instructs us on what walking in the Spirit looks like. And so in verse 22 and 23, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, if you'll notice, Paul begins the list in the same way as he began this section of Scripture in verse 13, where he says, But through love serve one another. And so here he lays the foundation for the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit. Of God as love. But we saw in the list earlier regarding the deeds of the flesh that one common thread that went through every one of those manifestations of the desire of the flesh to include immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, all of it. The common thread was the worship of self and an exaltation of self above not only those around us, but God himself. The fruit of the Spirit, however, begins with its foundation as love. And as Jesus responded to the question of what the greatest commandment was, he said that we are to love God with everything that we have, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now here Paul echoes this sentiment and says that the foundation of the fruit of the Spirit is love, but it doesn't end there. This love yields a progression that builds a believer throughout the course of their life into a person who is steadfast in that love and into the, in their obedience. Now I mentioned the word progression just as there is a progression with the deeds of the flesh above, there exists a progression in the fruit of the Spirit as well. And it's manifested in the life of a believer that love will lead the believer into joy. Now the joy that believer rec- experiences is because he, rec- he or she recognizes the love that has been shown him and in turn distributes that love to everyone around him, which leads to a joyous or a joy-filled life. Someone who is marked by love and joy is inevitably a person who is a peaceful person, but not only a peaceful person, a peaceable person. Someone who is seeking peace in their life and in the lives of others around them. They have peace with God and they have peace with others because they are marked by love and joy. And that person, as that person develops, their love and joy is made stronger and marked by a peaceable nature. That peaceable nature then yields patience with other people. And developing into a patient person It's because they're not running around looking to exalt their desires over everyone else. They can be patient with others. They're willing to place others as a higher priority than than they themselves. Now, someone who is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, is inevitably a kind person. They look to take the kindness that God has shown them in salvation and pour that out to others around them. They desire to distribute that same kindness that God has given them to others. And someone who is marked by all of this to include kindness displays an outpouring of goodness in their life. Now, not the, not the goodness the world talks about, but the goodness of God in his characteristics and his attributes. And as a person lives out the goodness of God, they become one who is known as faithful. Faithful not only to God in obedience to him, but faithful to one another. Are you known as a faithful person? Are you known as someone who will not only be faithful in your obedience to Christ, but faithful in your relationships to others? Are you consistent in the sacrificial way that you relate to other people within your family, within your community, within your church, within your your work space, whatever it is? It should be the desire of every believer to stand in front of the king one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. No greater trophy there, right guys? That is the award right keep the crowns keep all the stuff that one is the one we're looking for well done good and faithful servant is that you is that what you're looking for is it me so the person who is marked by these characteristics and is eventually described as a faithful person will mimic the lord in his gentleness now this gentleness is not to be confused with weakness our king has not and does not change He's the same Lord in the moment that he was gentle and patient with children and his disciples as when he will come one day in great power, glory, and judgment. Now to be marked by gentleness does not mean that we cannot be firm, we cannot be tough when the situation calls for it but we do it in love and patience and gentleness where possible from the standpoint of what Jesus instructed when he told, us his, he told his disciples to make sure that you don't have a log in your own eye before you worry about the speck in the other guy's eye. Right? Now all these manifest- manifestations of the Spirit, sorry that word's hard, thus far lead us to our final manifestation. As our foundation, we have love that leads to joy and peace and patience, and that patience leads to goodness. Taken together, we become a faithful person who is described as gentle. Having grown in all of these areas and being marked by the one fruit of the Spirit, we reach a point of self-control. We then have the ability to fight the flesh and win because we are affirmatively By choice, consciously, walking in the Spirit. And he is yielding his fruit. Now notice it doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. Just like there's one desire, one flesh, there is one Spirit, one fruit. Now that fruit is manifested in multiple ways, but there is one fruit, we as believers at the point of our conversion receive this as the presence of the Holy Spirit in total in our lives. And, more, and most certainly it grows over time. And we are led through that progression that I, that I mentioned. But it isn't simply that I'm good if I have one of those things. If I'm a loving person but I'm not any of that other stuff, I'm still good. Right? That's not what this is referencing. It is the fruit. A believer should see all of this in their lives. Growing, small at the beginning and growing over time, of course. Stronger in one area than another, sure. But the manifestation of the Spirit in my life is all of it. And so the Spirit of God resides in us in full at the point of our new birth. The power to exhibit these things is in us. And our ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to exhibit self-control resides in us now. The Spirit of God lives within us, manifests himself in us, and through us from the beginning, and he develops us into the image of Christ more and more over time. It's not, it's not one versus the other. It's a both and. So Paul finishes his thought in verse 25 by giving us the answer to the question of how to make no provision for the flesh. He says that if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, there's an important point here in verse 24. He says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified Notice the past tense of that word. Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When the the scripture refers to the fact that he has broken the chains of sin within our lives, this is what he's referencing. Our flesh has been crucified. It is a defeated enemy, but it still remains, and we must war against it. But he says that if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Church, this is our goal. Once brought to spiritual life by the new birth, we are to recognize and willfully engage in this war that rages within us. We do so by walking by the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit, obedient to the word he wrote and submissive to the Lord in all things. This, for our part, is how we act as warriors and do as Paul did when he said that he buffeted his body and put it in subjection to Christ. So let's follow his example and do the same. If there's anything about this that is foreign to you, if you've listened to this, and you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. If you want to learn what it is to be a follower of Christ and to live in subjection to our King, I'm going to be over here, be happy to speak to you. If the concept of walking by the Spirit is something that you you know you're a believer, but you struggle mightily with, and you want to speak to somebody, grab an elder. I'll be over there to speak with me uh, that you can speak with as well and at the end of the day as the, as the um, worship team comes up we have to see that this is our goal church this is the ch- this is the goal that we are after that one day we walk every day we walk by faith and we end up as faithful servants of the king, so that on that day, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. All right, let's pray.